So if you look, look deeply into my wife's eyes, which I constantly do, or into my eyes, which she constantly has to, <laughs> one thing is for certain, these past two months have been ex- extraordinarily difficult for my wife and I, um, although we've had a blast in what we're doing I'll be honest with you, I'm exhausted. I'm worn out. And those, even that bright light is just killing my eyes. Um, but uh, I, I'm thinking for the sake of those that are out in virtual land, we need to keep it on. So, uh, but please pray for us. The end is in view, <laughs> kind of. And... Um, Obviously, my health has taken a whack because of it. This week, I've been sick all week. Didn't even show up to church on Wednesday because you can ask Gabe. I've been hacking and hardly could hear me talk throughout the week. It is a little bit better now, but my ears are plugged, my head is sore, and my voice is shaky. (coughs) That all being said, we're going to try to preach the rest of Romans in one service. I don't know how in the world that's possible, but the endeavor is to give an overview of what the text is saying. With that said, I have 120 slides, three sermons, and I'm going to try to juggle all those to give you the overview of the chapter. But in order to do that, I think it's best if we... Um, basically, just verse by verse, word through word, word by word, go through the text and just explain as we go. That might be the easiest for me because I'm going to make mistakes uh, and hopefully it'll be understandable and helpful for you. Um, I got to get out of here real quick. Okay, it is there. Wonderful. All right. God has called His church to unity. His body, His church. There is a movement afoot today that Christian schools are the embodiment of the body of Christ. Christian unions are the body of the Christ. Christian softball leagues are the body of Christ. And the reason they believe that is because, they, in their opinion, they are full of Christians, and wherever Christians are, that is the epitome of the body of Christ. But I will tell you this, the church is the body of Christ. Absolutely. The universal church, and that is where they're thinking, their head immediately goes to the universal church. But the reality is the universal church has not yet met. And therefore, I don't know why you would be talking about that. What we do know is this is the local embodiment of the body of Christ. Amen. And so that is our discussion. 
That is our focus. God has called us to unity. I am not talking about going over to a neo-Calvinist church and, and, and embracing everything they say and love because we just unify and that's what it takes. Full-on ecumenicism. Folks, that is not what the text says. And that is not what we're talking about. We are talking about what does it look like within this local assembly. And that looks like unity. It must look like unity. How, what do we unify around? We reunify around Christ, right? And what does that look like? Well, we have a whole doctrinal statement of what that looks like. And that doctrinal statement is important because we all agree to it. That's why we are unified in, if you will, theology. Are you following me? We are unified in Christ. We are unified in Scripture. We are unified in the sovereign God. We are unified in those things that are biblical. God has called us to unity. The only way unity will be accomplished within the local assembly is with complete humility. Without humility, there is no unity. <clears throat> now, I know that the temple was not a church, per se. It was an assembly. It was different. They sacrificed idols, or sacrificed idols. Well, some people did. They, they sacrificed sacrificed animals and things and, and, and worshiped there. Okay, I understand that. But, so it's, it's, it's not a church, but it is an assembly where people worshiped. How many would agree with that? That There was no church when Jesus was on this earth. Church did not start till in Acts chapter 2 with Peter's preaching. That being said, what, how did Jesus deal with the religious people of his day. I, I'm, I'm, this is an open discussion, okay? I know this is not normal, but I want us all to think through it because Christ lived on this earth, died on this earth, resurrected on this earth, and is sitting at the right hand of God. Amen. And we are unified in him, no question, but what did he do with the religious sect of his day? All right, just think with me if you will, please. The last time he was in the temple, what did he do before Passover? Oh, he got a little upset. He overturned the money changers, whipped them, and pushed them out of the temple. And then, what did he do? Matthew chapter 23, chapter 23 and 24. What did he do? 23. Woe to you! Oh, that was uplifting. Mr. Olstein would not be proud. Woe to you! I mean, he just starts blasting them. When Je did Jesus ever, quote-unquote, use the vernacular language of the day negatively against the religious people? You whitewashed sepulchers. That is not, oh, you look good today. Not at all. You snakes. 
you den of vipers. Did he, other, did he use other negative terms to deal with the religious sect of the area and the times? There's even one time where he, I believe, grabbed a stone and whipped it right back at him. He said, you hypocrites. Whoever's not guilty of sin, you throw the first stone at this young lady. You see, let me ask you, was Jesus unified with the religious sect of his day? Not one bit. Why? Because they did not base their whole entire religious belief on the Scripture, but on tradition. Tradition will fail. Scripture never will. We, that's why, and here's the whole point of the whole the story, theology is important. Theology is important. Unity comes from humility. Do we know all of Scripture as we should know it? Yes or no? No. In a sense, there is not one, not one soul, not one body, not one person in this room that is strong in all of Scripture. We are all weak in aspects of Scripture. Amen? We are. So we must have humility. There are some people who are, might be just born again, and they might know something different about Scripture than I ever knew. And they can come alongside and help me in my weakness. Praise God for that. It takes gentleness. Why? We say we believe the same things. Do we not? We say we believe this. We're unified behind that. So then what? Whoa. We're going to... And, and I know Mr. Pierce has said this before. Like, and, and, and I'll use what Mr. Pierce said. He said, I, your business meetings are fantastic. There's no yelling and screaming. <laughs> I've never been in one like that. But I can't imagine being one in one like that. Why? Because it's not... It, if we're unified in Scripture and truths, theology, man, we will be humble and we will be gentle with one another and understanding and have deference with one another on issues that aren't super important. Patience. Do we need patience? We need patience. With each other. Because all of us are going to need that. From Scripture we have found, and, th and this is the whole point of Romans 12-16, through 16, but we have found already <clears throat> how do we please God. Romans 12 tells us the practice of pleasing God. Romans 13 includes government in that, which we've dealt with two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Uh, Romans 14 is this is how we please God within the church. Unified, amen, in the church. That's why we talked about unity this morning. Romans 14. Romans 15 is how does this pleasing God get accomplished? 
How is it going to be accomplished? So in essence, if you want to go through the whole book, chapters 1 through 8, if you will, are filled and saturated with theological, foundational, dogmatic orthodoxy that cannot be muted. We must embrace 1 through 8 theologically together. Amen. And if we do, then what happens is chapters 9 through 11. I'm going to give you this. This is all so good to you. Here's what that looks like. And it talks about how that God is using the Gentiles to make somehow, some way, the Jews jealous. And if the Jews' mistakes have been a glory to the Gentiles, i.e. the church, can you imagine what's going to happen when the Gentiles' mistake will do to the Jews? What a fantastic thing, 9 through 11. Then comes chapter 12. Based on all this theological passage that we have been saturated in for years now, based on this, these truths, this is how we shall live. How many have ever heard, how shall we then live? That's it. Romans 12 through 16 is how shall we then live. And he explains it. He says, what does he say? Romans 12.1 I beg of you present your bodies a living sacrifice. By the way, are bodies important to God? They're very important to God. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. Daily. Hourly. Live in the Word. Live by the Word. How many of you have ears? Please raise your hand. There's this newfangled thing. It's called an earbud. And it's Bluetooth. And you know what? There are places in your life where you just have opportunities to listen to the Word of God. Or you could listen to the latest by oh, Billy Rowe. Billy, I don't even know her name. Cyrus. I, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, you can laugh, but that tells you how much I like that. <laughs> Regardless, I mean, you can spend your time in the world or you can spend your time in the Word. Just look at the world and you tell me which one's better. There is no hope outside of God and His Word. So we can practice pleasing God by living daily our lives before God. And what does that practically look like in the government? We obey unless God says differently. We honor them unless God says differently. What does that look like in the church? And what we dealt with that last week. How does that look like in our passage today? Well, let's go to chapter 14. And we're going to read verses 13 through 23. This is because we're doing an overview, right? And then we'll get to verse 15 where we are focused. Well, let's just go to 15. Forget about the 14. Do imitate Christ. Anybody have a heading above, your, above the chapter, verse 15? Do imitate Christ. What does that mean? Do imitate Christ. Let me ask you this. Did Jesus Christ please God? Here's a very difficult question that I'd like you to answer and at least think through. Did Jesus Christ... Obey His will, God's will, and not His own will. 
Does that make your head kind of spin a little bit? Jesus is God, but He says what? Not my will, but thine be done. So He obviously did. Was it a difficult decision? Well, let's just look at the body of Christ as that decision was coming to fruition. What did he do? Sweat drops of blood. Did he ever stand up and defend himself as a sheep before his shears is dumb? So Christ spoke not a word. You see, His life on this earth was to please His Father which is in heaven. Our life on this earth is to please not only the Father, but the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. That is our requirement. That is what we are to be doing. Pleasing Him. Verse, chapter 15, verse 1. Now, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. We talked about this last week in a very brief thing. It's about others, verse 1. It's not about me, verse 2. It's about Christ, verse 3. It's about Scripture, verse 4. It's about God's power, verse 5. And verse 6, it's for God's glory alone. Social media has destroyed everything written here. Everything. Because it's all based on how many likes can I get. Well, that's easy. Just be the most ungodly and say the most ungodly and live the most ungodly way and portray it to all the world because the people of the world love ungodliness. So they do. What's the end result of that? When you're in trouble, where are you going to go? There is no one. You've chosen your path. And your path has no hope and without God. But God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. Amen? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 tell us how ugly and nasty it is to live in and of the world. But God breaks through time, culture, history, and dies for us. There is a way out. And that way out is to put our faith and trust only in God, not on Who's the new owner of Twitter? Elon Musk. Listen, folks, he's going to make some major mistakes if he hasn't already. Our trust is not on these guys that own billions. They are in it for their billions. Our trust is in God and God alone. In chapter 14, we didn't specifically talk about this, but it was talking about people that were so arrogant about themselves, they wanted to rule everybody, the Nicolaitans. How many remember the Nicolaitans? 
They are a wicked people. Paul make very clearly, and so does John, calls them out. The Nicolaitans did two things. They put everything on religious tradition, and secondly, they thought they knew everything, and so they were feeding. They thought they were the biggest thing in everything. Everybody should be eating their meat. Then their meat was wrong. The Nicolaitans, this, this you do have, which you hate, the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. It means to overcome. These people were overcomers of the church. They were overcomers of the people. See that word, laos? That is an ungodly word. Do you know what laos means? The people. Do you know how it is used? Well, let me quote to you a head of a denomination in this country today. The only reason Christians don't become pastors is because they can't handle the drama. And so it's up to us to deal with it. I can't work with my hands very well, so I don't. But they, they, the laitans, they can't, they're not equipped and they can't handle drama. How many are excited about hearing something like that? In just that phrase, he threw every single church attender under the bus as something less than himself. He played the part of the Nicolaitan. Does that make sense? God hates them. It's talking about a clergy laity. They supposedly know the Dutch. And actually, out of the Nicolaitans, I think what really came out of them, to be honest with you, is what's that treasury, tre- uh, the U.S. Uh, man, man. The secret sea of the Masons, Illuminati's. How many know all that cool stuff, right? Yeah, okay. Those are the guys that know it all and you're just nobody. These were the first ones, the Nicolaitans. Hebrews chapter 5 says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the actual words of God. Not some Illuminati thing. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. Revelation 2.24 But I say to you, the rest who are at thy tire, who do not hold to this over-lording over idea, who have not known the deep things of, and instead of calling it deep things of God, like they did, John says the deep things of Satan. He's attributing these Nicolaitans as Satan followers. As they call them. I place no other burden on you. Nicolaitans also were the doctrine of Balaam. Just who cares? We'll abuse our Christian liberty and do whatever we want. Sin so that grace may abound is the attitude we found also in Romans. They were, and and this is a whole bunch of words which probably, they were antinomian Gnostics of the Lysians type. They were without the law, Only their spiritual aspect of life matters to them. 
and sin as much as you can. That's what that text says. That's what they were. Romans 15, 1 through 6, destroys that nonsense found in chapter 14. He says, it's all about others. It's not about me. It's Christ alone, Scripture alone, power alone for the God's glory of gold. God has called His church to unity. How can we be unified if we do not love one another? True? Do we love one another? Do we truly love one another? And that doesn't just mean, well, I'll just be in deference to all your wickedness. Sometimes we call out people we love. Amen. And there's a whole list of one another's found in multiple passages of Scripture in Romans and Corinthians and the like. Love one another. How are we to love one another? Verse 1 says, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. It's not about me and my comfort. It's about them and God's glory. Amen. Now accept the one. Romans 14.1 started the same way as Romans 15.1. Accept one another. What does 15.1 say? Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. In other words, we don't just put up with each other. We love each other. There is a difference. Listen, if you came to church today thinking, I hope they're not here because I don't want to see them, you need to go talk to them. Because there's no love there. There's no unity there, and it's a disglorification to our great and sovereign God. So we are to accept the weak. We are to bear the weak. Bear their burdens. Weep with them. Laugh with them. Love them. Galatians 2 says the same thing. Bear one another's burdens and therefore fulfill the law of Christ. In other words, Loving each other is a fulfillment of all the law. It is. It's not about you. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. The phrase, what can I get out of this relationship is not a Christian phrase. It's of Satan. That was number one. Number two, it's about Christ. It's about Christ. Who is Christ? For even Christ did not please Himself. If there was anybody in this world that should be able to and had every right to please Himself, would it not be Christ? By the way, how many have ever heard, and this is so cool, I don't even know if I have it in here, but I know it's in my paper and it's just really important. How many have ever heard of megalomania? What is a megal, megalomaniac? An uber person that wants to bring glory to himself. Now, just think with me, if you will. If God desires that everything you do is a glorification to Him, what does that make Him? 
in some people's view, a megalomaniac. At least that's our thoughts. Because we have been twisted. Let me explain it this way. By the way, he's not. He's not a megalomaniac, and I'm going to express it to you. How many of you, oh man, this is really bad because none of you like sports, or very few of you do. But maybe you can imagine this. Imagine going to a stadium of one million people. And all one million people are there to watch their team. We will just, for example, call them the Minnesota Vikings. Just, and it's the Super Bowl. And they are supposed to not win it. They're picked to lose. That sounds reasonable. Right? At the beginning of the game, the announcer comes out and says, okay, here are the rules to be in the stadium. When someone from your team does good, you cannot applaud. And if your team wins, there will be no screaming. And there will be no applauding. Let me ask you, why in the world would you go to that stadium? So where are you going with all this? I can just read your minds. Our enjoyment of something demands that we express an outward explanation mark. How many understand that? It is to our benefit to be able to, woohoo! I love doing that. It's been a long time that I even could do that. <clears throat> How many get that? You shoot that biggest buck of your life. Yeah, just another buck. You're not going to do that. Your enjoyment is completed with the exclusion of your excitement. How many understand that? So when God says, glorify me, He's not talking about bring honor and glory to me because I'm a megalomaniac. He's saying, express your joy to me because your expression is for the, 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 the conclusion, the, the essence of your excitement for me. It, it, it brings out the greatest joy. How many understand that? Does that make sense? That is exactly who God is. He cares about you. And the reason He wants you to glorify Him and to praise Him is because, man, we love singing about Him. Why is singing so important? Why is praising so important? Because that's how we express our, great, our gratitude, our love. It, it's the same idea of expressing our love to our husband or wife and someone says no you can't do that do, do you get it god wants us to glorify him because it's in our best interest that's the issue for even christ did not please himself but as it is written the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me 
That's a big deal. That is a huge deal. I know of a pastor who has been wrongly accused of many, many things. And he has a choice. He can destroy a marriage over it to prove that he's not that guy or that person. Or he can choose not to destroy the marriage and who cares what happens to his um, name. Is that not what Jesus Christ Himself did? Listen, was Jesus always right? Absolutely. And He would have been right to wipe out everybody. But instead, He let our sins put Him on the cross. The shame. By the way, we look at this rightly so as Jesus died for our sins, and that's absolutely correct. But just look at it from Christ's view vantage point. What was the cross back then? It was a humiliation. It was the worst thing that could happen to you. So it wasn't just the death, but everybody viewed it as, ugh, he is, ugh. And they literally made depictions, there are depictions today, inside caves of making fun of the man on the cross. Why did he lose his fame? Why did he lose his great name, although he didn't? Because of our sins and his love for you and me. I think that's pretty powerful. Philippians 2, 3 through 5. Um, I'm going to go to the next one because have this attitude in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus. So we're making the connection with Christ, right? who although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of a man, being humbled himself, he became obedient to the point of death, even the uh, factor. That's what that's saying. He became like us so that people would hate and despise him. Is that, if that's not the antithesis of social media, I don't know what it is. Because social media, media is about getting known and getting popular. Well, that's the exact opposite of Christ did. Verse 3. By the way, we talked about in, verse, in, in Christ, who is Christ, what did that look like? And the, the, that is so important, Christology is so important. Christ did not give up His deity. Never did. He laid aside the opportunities to use His deity by His choices while on this earth. That's the difference. Does that make sense? 
So all of that went in. We talked about that for a whole Sunday. By the way, that, that sermon is extremely important in understanding true Christology. Verse 6, he existed in the form of God. Verse 7, he emptied himself, or oh, I'm sorry, did not regard equality with God. In other words, he lay aside the opportunity to use his deity. <clears throat> he emptied himself, again, the same thing, just received the form of a slave. Jesus received the form of a slave. He was a man. Could Jesus sin then? No. No, Jesus could not sin. Unless you hold to a Greek or classical model of Gnosticism. How many of you have a body? Say amen. How many have a soul? Say amen. Okay. There are two parts of a person, amen? Just like there are within Christ, there are two natures of a person. He had a human nature and he had a deity nature. It's the person that sins. It's not just one aspect of that person. I learned something new yesterday. Are you excited about this? I hope so, because I'm just going to add this in. How many have talked about souls and body? How many understand souls and body? So there are people who believe that all things have souls. How many have heard that? Like animals have souls and, and things like this. I challenge you on something. I learned this yesterday. When God breathed into man, what did God give him? What is the word there? Soul. He already had a body, and then he breathed into it. So he has a soul and a body according to the foundation of Scripture. How many understand that? It's something interesting about animals. Never does it talk about God breathing into them. But it says that they are souls. Is there a difference between being a soul and having a soul? Yes or no? There is. And the Bible is specific about it. Because basically it's equating the soul with life in those passages. Meaning it's living. It's alive. What is different about a man's soul? Does it ever die? So the question is, and I'm not going to answer it, but I encourage you to read the text because you'll see, oh, it doesn't say that he had that they had a soul, is that they were a soul, which means they were living. So when a man dies, his body dies, does it not? But his soul lives. Is that the same with an animal? That's a question you can study because it's fun studying Scripture. Amen. And by the way, it does have philosophy and science in it. And who better to talk about science and philosophy than the Bible, right? The source of both. All right. Did Jesus sin? No. <clears throat> he came to be in human likeness. He did not. He was not like Clark Kent in Superman. I can't do this on my own. I better get in my booth. That's not what Jesus did. Amen. Not at all. He was a man. Being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even to the cross. 
The cross of Christ. By the way, why did he even say all this? All of that that went through was for one reason. The greatest example of the strong bearing the burden of the weak was Jesus himself. And everything he did on this earth had nothing to do, if you will, in a sense, for his good, but for ours. I think this is a powerful, powerful statement. This is what humble, selfish living looks like. Amen? It certainly does. Romans 15, 1-6, it's all about others, it's not about me, it's Christ, it's Scripture, it's power for God's glory. Verse 4, and what, it was, and what was written in earlier times was written for our instructions, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of Scriptures, we might have hope. What is that verse saying? I will tell you what it's saying. We have no hope apart from His special revelation. There's no hope. So what happens to all the world? They are without hope. There is no hope out there. Just because you get a million likes on Twitter doesn't make that you're going to have hope because those millions are going to drop off on you like you can't imagine. Because this world is all about who? Me, self. So that through the Word... It's talking about what? The Word of God. That is our source of perseverance. That is our source of encouragement. That is the only place we have hope. Through the Word of God. All Scripture. Not just some of it. All of Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Do you want to live a peaceful life in this world for God? Then you've got to be saturated in the Word. You have to be. I, I will tell you this. There's a lot of people in our government that need to read the Bible. Amen? Let me tell you another truth. Most people sitting in the pew need to read their Bible. Oh, it's easy to look at them and point our finger, but let's start with us. Scripture is not optional. It's not. Why? Because the Word is living and acting and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. I would say that's pretty powerful. Who can judge the thoughts and intents of the heart? Only God. And this is His Word. This truly has come to life in my life in the last two months. <sighs> what you put in through your eyelids 
will be found in your feet. What? How many understand what I just said? Listen, folks, what are you reading? What is consuming your eyes and your mind? I will tell you this, if Scripture is consuming your eyes and your mind, it will help you be righteous in a wicked world. But, if Twitter, I don't even know what that is. I, don't even, I mean, I have an idea. I've never been on it. If TikTok, Facebook, Meta, whatever, if all that stuff is what your eyes are feasting on, no wonder you have no hope. No wonder. That is what the world gives you. No hope. The Word of God is the only thing that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and you can read it. When building up one another, Scripture is the greatest medicine. Amen? Oh, but you're so pretty. That's irrelevant and totally subjective. True? Oh, but you're so nice. Let me, let me help massage your ego. No, no, a million times no. We are depraved human beings, as dirty as dirty can be, laying prostrate on our face before a supreme, perfect being named God. God is our strength. You can philosophize, you can try to to, to uh, manipulate and tweak and, and just try to make everybody feel good about themselves. Scripture is simply honest and can do much more and greater than any massaging will ever do. By the way, the massaging of the ego has been taking place in our country for quite some time. Look where we're at now. Nobody's wrong. Everybody's right. And everybody must bow down to the worst, horrible, wicked uh, beings and attitudes of our world. The problem is we just don't know Scripture. So when these needs come arising, we go to a book besides Scripture to give them answers. Romans 15.5, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind one towards another. I, I love this. Because our hope is not based on how well I keep the law. Our salvation is based on how great and sovereign our God is. How many say amen to that? 
It's the God who gives perseverance and encouragement. And how does He give perseverance and encouragement? Obviously, there are perseveres one way, right? He perseveres His saints. But the encouragement, where does that come from? The Word of God. It's not sitting around a campfire doing kumbaya. It's sitting at a table, saturating your eyes and your heart with the Word of God. Romans 15.5, now may the God who perseveres and encouragement grant you to be the same mind for one another according to Christ for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that you, that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. That's awesome how those work together. Verse 5, may God grant you. Do you see the sovereignty of God in that? Okay, here's, here's another. I have heard, Pastor, you just preach about the sovereignty of God too much. I can understand if we're going to become fatalists. But fatalists is wrong. How many understand what a fatalist is? Apart from fatalism, there is no way you can discuss the sovereignty of God too much. There isn't. By the word, by the way, may and grant. Those aren't people. Those are actions done by God. May and grant. What is it that he wants? Same mind with one another. We just want to please God. Right? So that with one accord you may have with one voice glorify God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, do we with one voice glorify God or is it all different voices saying different things? If we are all saturated in the Word, well then where is our source of our hope? The Word. Can we have a one voice if that is our only hope? Yes, yes, a million times yes. Saturation of the Word. And what happens with that one voice? Then we can glorify God. Then we can come to the excitement the, the end results of our praise, right? We can exude the praises to God. Glorify Him. Praise Him. Sing to Him. Write songs about Him. To the glory of God the Father. When theologically minded Christians, we talked about unity when we started, right? When theologically minded Christians focus on people's needs, they focus on Christ, they focus on the Scripture, they focus on God, unity becomes us. There is no other option. We will be unified. But those have to be the focuses. They have to. God is glorified when His people are of one focus. You want to glorify God in your life? Then those have to be your focuses. 
and we live all of our lives, wherever that may be, in glorification and service to God. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. How can you abound in hope? My goodness, saturate yourself in the Word. Love each other. Serve each other. Focus on God. Verse 14, And concerning you, my brother, and I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. You have the tools to be the one another's. Amen? (coughs) We have the tools. Let me ask you, how many of you read this week in the Old Testament? Okay, how many of you read in the New Testament? Okay, some of you read in both, right? Here's the reality. Did each of us read the same passage and so we're on the same mind? Is that what he's talking about? No. It's somebody was in the Old Testament, somebody was over here in Revelation, and someone had the strength and the guts to go to Daniel and describe for all that. Why? So that we can build each other up. Does that make sense? I'll I'll say it this way. Who, and I've said this before, but it's a perfect illustration. Who translated the Greek New Testament into English? What was his name? Okay, Erasmus, you are really close. Like, I can't believe you even got there, but good job. Erasmus was the one who wrote it in Greek. Tyndale. So Erasmus and Tyndale both said something. They said, my desire is to get the Bible in the hands of the plowboy. Plowboy spelled P-L-O-U-G-H-B-O-Y. Just so you know. (laughs) Because it was Old English, okay? But they said that. Let me ask you, how did the Bible get in the hands of the plowboy? Was it simply Tyndale in his translation? No. What about the farmer who had to produce the food, to produce the beef, to produce the leather, to go to the leather crafter, to go to the stainer, the ink maker, the page maker. I mean, you start talking about the baker who was giving him donuts all day. Somebody to nourish the guy, right? All these guys worked not knowingly together, but served the world by placing a Bible in the plowboy's hand because everybody was serving God in different aspects. That's exactly what you're doing when you read Scripture. You're reading from here and here and here and here, and when you put it all together, oh man, is it awesome. Amen? You can actually start challenging each other and sharpening each other to become more like Christ. Wow. We can actually admonish one another biblically. I praise the Lord for our church, by the way. um, God has not designed me to be a quiet, peaceful, 
solitude guy. How many would agree with that? Unfortunately, some people believe that means that I'm mad or upset or, listen, I'm just passionate about the text. I love each and every one of you and I don't have an ax to grind with any of you. You can say amen to that because that's true. <laughs> okay. Reality is, I just am excited about what the text says, aren't you? And I love it when people come, I, my heart does, and, and, and I know if this happened to you, I totally understand it. When I have someone come, and matter of fact, it happened last week, I got a text, pastor, so thankful for CE hour, I am learning so much, I'm like bouncing on cloud nine, not because I did something great, but because I serve a God that is great, and I can't wait to explain him to you. And each of us are doing that. So I'm not mad. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> Just passionate. But I have written you boldly. Okay. Mm. What we just talked about. <laughs> See that? Now, now they're dear children. <sighs> it's not what he said. But I have written very boldly to you on some points. So as to remind you again because of the grace that was given to me from God. This isn't about me. This is about you. And it's not from me. It's, it's not about my intellect. It's about God. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. Verse 15, but I have written very boldly because of the grace that has been given to me, what? To be a minister of Christ to the Gentiles. Listen, folks, you as a believer can say almost the exact same thing Paul did, save one term. Everyone sitting in this room that has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation, you are a minister of Jesus Christ. Every one of you are. There is no one that is outside of that. You are a minister of Jesus Christ. Now in this day and age that Paul is writing, he said, my ministry specifically is to the Gentiles. That was his ministry. Your ministry might be to serve the people at MPNL. Or serve the people at a foundry or a public school or your home. Wherever that may be, you are a minister of God. Does that mean you preach the gospel to them all the time? That's not what I'm saying. You serve God in that job and therefore you are serving other people. When someone comes to you and says, hey, my wife just died. Sorry about that, dude. I'll pray for you. See ya. That's not serving them. There's a reason they come to you with your, their problems. They expect answers from the Bible that will help them. That is how we serve each other. Does that make sense? Be a minister of Christ to the Gentiles, ministering how? As a priest. Oh, what? How many of you have a good view of priests? 
None of us do because of the nasty... Oh, by the way, uh, i got to tell you this. One of the guys that was saying, uh, one of the guys that I've been reading this last couple of weeks um, says this. We owe a debt of gratitude. An un, unprecedented gratitude for the medieval church. What? What? <laughs> What is he talking about? The reason we look at the medieval church, is there any positives, by the way? I mean, it's like they went to the Holy Land and slaughtered people. Anybody who disagreed with them, off with their head. And if we didn't like them, we'd pick up their bones and burn them again and throw them in the depths. I mean, just are you kidding me? But the reality is, the term priest is a godly term. Is it not? So we get, we get an attitude because of the medieval church, because of priests, right? Priests, popes, we okay, get it, understandable. But every one of you are a priest. You are. You are a priest of God. We have been called a royal priesthood. Amen? What does that mean? We offer sacrifices to God. What are those? What is that? What is that offering? Serving one another is an offering to God, and it's a sweet-smelling savor to God. Helping others is a serve is a offering to God. All these things are sacrifices, and when we say sacrifices, it means oh, I got a sacrifice. That's what I'm saying. It's offering. How many get that? The difference between sacrifice. I'm not using it as a verb. I'm using it as a noun. It is an offering. Ministering as priests the gospel of God. It is the gospel of God. There is only one gospel. There is not two. There is not three. There is no such... I can't go there. I'm sorry. I'll I'll have to stop that. There is only one gospel. The Bible says Jesus Christ, God Almighty, came to this earth, lived a life, died on a cross, was buried for three days, and rose again, and now sits at the right hand of God. His death took care of your sin if you repent and believe. That is the one gospel of Jesus Christ. Anything added to that is false. Anything subtracted from that is false. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are to be priests of the gospel of God. Why? So that my offering of the Gentiles. So he's talking about, okay, my service to the Gentiles. What I did for them, giving them the gospel. That was an offering to God. So literally, your Work is an offering to God wherever you... I tell you what, giving mail to all the mailboxes. It's not because I might win the million dollar sweepstakes and it's coming in the mail, right? Do you remember that in the 1980s or whatever it was? But it's because Josie is serving God by serving other people. Those are offerings to God. As a grandparent... 
What, what you do for your young grandchildren and your children for God's glory are offerings to God. As a son or as a daughter, obeying your parents, that term obedience is an offering to God. My offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. My duties of as a priest, since we are priests, are ministering and offering. Who are the other priests? Levites were the priests, Jesus is the priest, and we as Christians are the priests. Running out of time and getting through this quickly, sorry. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that. 1 Timothy chapter 2, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We are not talking about Catholic traditional priests. There was no such thing after Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's done. It's gone. There's only one mediator. That mediator is Jesus. Not some guy with a white collar. Or a suit, for that matter. You also as living stones are being built up as spiritual houses for a holy priesthood. That's what we are. First Peter 2.9, a chosen race, a holy priesthood. Verse 16, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That's where we're at in our text. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in the power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Paul could say, I ministered my, my, my life to you in Thessalonica, as total service to God. And now you have seen my good works, and therefore you can glorify my Father, which is in heaven, with me. It's not just a little niche in our spiritual lives somewhere. It's our entire being. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in the things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. That, that is such a powerful verse. So powerful. Now, we actually sang a song at that moment. In the, do you remember um, how deep the Father's love for us and the reason we do things? Romans 15, 19 tells us, we're just going to go on here. In the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Ilysrium, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. <clears throat> and here is the whole idea. The whole idea is all that green stuff, most of that green stuff, is Gentilic land in his mind. Down below, well, there's Israel and the Jews. and Okay, different. Paul thought, in a sense, that as soon as I get to Spain, I'll have accomplished preaching to the Gentiles. He says, and thus I aspire to preach the gospel not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. But as is written, those who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. For this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you. In other words, I am so busy working for the Lord, I can't come and enjoy my time with you. Is that our testimony? 
I want to get through this, so follow with me if you will, please. <coughs> but now, with no further place for me in these regions, see, he thought he had accomplished things. And since I have had for many years a longing to come to you, and the knows there's one place left. I, whenever I go to Spain, where I hope to see you in passing and to help be helped on my way there by, by you, when I first enjoyed your company for a while, but now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. By the way, that just blows away the social gospel right there. The social gospel says our, our lives are all to be feeding the poor of this world and helping the poor of the world. And as one author says, it's standing by the victims of this world. Well, the Bible says here that for Paul, it was contributing to the poor. What kind of poor? The saints. There's a passage of scripture, and I think it's in Galatians chapter 2, verse 6 maybe, but it's in Galatians, I believe. It says, I, I, be good to all people, but especially to the household of faith. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are, inde and I am, and they are indebted to them. If the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. That, that's just so cool. Christ came from Israel, amen. Christ is, Israel is the reason Christ is here. They are at least indebted to pay back to them something. That's the idea in verse 27. Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on my way of you to Spain. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness and blessing of Christ. Now I urge, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. How? Because I have, I have a sore foot and my eyes can't see as well as I could. And um, no, it says this, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be approved acceptable to the saints so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing in your company. Now, the reason I said it that way is this. Now, the God of peace with you all, amen, is this. There's nothing wrong with asking God to help in our infirmities. There's nothing wrong with that. But infirmities are not the exhaustive reason we pray. Did you hear that? It is not the only reason. It is a small part of it. The biggest thing is, hey, I've got this guy at work, and he's asking this question, how can I help him? Let's pray about it, and then let's search scripture about it, and let's help each other give biblical answers for it. Amen? Is that not what Paul was just saying? Pray for me that I can serve other people better. It's all about others. Chapter 16, we're going to, Lord willing, finish up next week. But as we do that, I want you to look at something. <clears throat> look at verse 2, a manner worthy. Look at verse 3, workers. Look at verse 5, 
uh, I mean, sorry, six, worked hard. Um, fellow prisoners, kinsmen, verse seven. These guys were just normal guys serving God in every aspect of their lives. And look at the litany of names Paul is mentioning name by name that are in Rome. And then he talks about him being in Corinth and some of the guys in Corinth with him. Pray for these guys too as they serve alongside of me. So we need to be praying for one another. How many would say amen and amen to that? But I would dare say the majority of our prayer needs to be praying for one another's service to God in this life. Does that make sense? Service to God in this life. Why? We're just aliens and sojourners. Man, that's what matters. What if someone didn't give you the gospel? Did you do something to deserve it? God put some on somebody's heart your name and you were given the gospel. They served you so that you will serve others. Amen? Powerful passages, are they not, concerning the church? I pray that we will have the mind of God this week and our service will be never-ending. As Paul says, I worked day and night serving you. I pray that's the case with each and every one of us. Mr. Gaiman, can you come and close in a word of prayer, please? Please stand and let's pray. Father, thank you for what you have done in forming your church. Thank you for the privilege of serving here. Remind us that as we serve others, we truly serve you. I pray we would do it with joy and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.